0: The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Backbone Planning Partners is a marketing name for registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Now let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's tycoons.
1: Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm here, as always, your host, Austin Peterson, coming to you live from our Phoenix Business Radio X studios in Tempe, Arizona. And today is a very special day. Landon Mance, my co-host, who has been absent from the show for uh, several weeks, is now here with me. And not only is he here on the show, but he's here in studio. So, Landon, welcome to the (laughs) studio. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, excited to have you in the studio here. So before we jump in and introduce today's guest, if this is the first time that you're listening to our podcast, um, we're on episode 104. So we're not just getting started. We're not new to this, but uh, we put together this podcast starting in May of 2020 as a, a way to prop up the small business owner. We believe that the small business owner is truly the backbone of the American economy, and we wanted to give them an opportunity to tell their story, to share advice, to give them you know, whatever it is, a way to market their business, whatever we can do to help prop up the business owner community Landon and I wanted to do. And so we started this, like I said, in May of 2020. We're now on episode 104. And today we definitely have a tycoon in the studio with us today. And this is actually rare for us as well. A guest That is from out of state that flew in. We've had it happen one other time in 103 episodes uh, where the guest flew in to be here in studio. So we're excited to welcome today's guest, Todd Ludlow, co-founder of the Chinoa Fund, who came in from outside a small town. I think it's Menden, Utah, outside of Logan.
2: Yeah, about an hour and a half north of, well, it's actually about an hour and a half north of Salt Lake, but yeah, it's right outside of Logan.
1: Yeah, so we're we're glad you made it down here. It's probably a little warmer here today than it is in Logan.
2: Most definitely, we had hail coming down yesterday morning. So, uh... <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I knew when weather. I when I yeah I called my mom. My mom lives in Utah. My mom lives in Provo, but talked to her on Mother's Day, and she told me that it was snowing in Salt Lake, and she was glad that it was just raining in in Provo.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's Utah weather.
1: Yeah, the, the, the Utah States. Springs, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's exactly what my son's son said to my, what, to my mother was, well, that's it. That's a Utah spring for you, right, mom or grandma?
2: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Just wait about 15 minutes and it'll be something completely different. Yeah,
1: <laughs> absolutely.
2: <laughs> all, all Phoenix knows is hot, hotter and hottest. That's, that's how they gauge their weather here. <laughs> and from outside, out, from outside Arizona, we know visit Phoenix between the months of about September and May. Early May. Early
1: May. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe late April just to just to be safe. And and I would actually probably not come until after November 1st if it were me oh. coming from out of state. All right. Good to know. We for us, we we know that if we can make it through Halloween, then we can kind of count <laughs> on it being consistently below a hundred degrees. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so well, so Todd, we're excited to have you here in studio. And and before we jump into kind of the business side of things and what you do with Chinoa Fund. Tell us about you personally. You know, tell us about your family. Where did you grow up? Did you go to college? What did you study?
2: All right, yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, let's see. I, I refer to myself as a Western mutt because I kind of grew up all over the West. I was born uh, Provo, actually. Okay. My uh, my mom and dad were attending Brigham Young University. I was a BYU baby. When I was about six months old, they moved us to Oregon. My dad was a school teacher. He's a very conservative school teacher. He thinks. Well, he thought I was absolutely insane. Uh, first off, because my first job out of college was a commissioned job as a commissioned loan officer. <laughs> he could not understand why anybody would want a commission job because you can't plan for anything. At least that was his, you know, thoughts yep. uh, on the matter. And then the fact that I went into uh, um, running my own businesses and things is just completely foreign to him. Um, but anyway, lived in Oregon for until I was about first grade. Um, then we moved to little town called Fallon, Nevada in the middle of the uh, Northern Nevada desert. And that's pretty much where I was raised, went to high school and everything there. Um, I was the oldest or I am the oldest. Actually, I was the oldest of seven. I'm now the second oldest of eight. Uh, my mom and dad, uh, or my dad was, uh, as a high school teacher, he had a, one of his students that one day just stopped. He, I don't know. He just changed, you know, kind of his, his whole dedication towards studying and things changed. And he, uh, He asked him what was going on and and, uh, found out that he and his, his, he'd had a rough kind of, you know, growing up and he didn't have a place to live. He was kind of living with friends. My dad invited him to come live with us. And, you know, about 20 years later, my parents adopted him. So that's how I ended up being the second oldest of of eight there. We ended up, uh, I I went to school at uh, Brigham Young University, kind of, you know, following my dad's footsteps. He encouraged me to go there and they were willing to pay for it. if, Well, They were willing to help me pay for it. I actually went on an ROTC scholarship and uh, decided after a year of the ROTC that the military life was probably not fit for my personality. So I I dropped my electrical engineering career and I began studying business um, through the Merritt School of Management there focused on finance at the time, not really knowing what it was, but I knew that I loved economics and there was no way I was going to get a doctorate to be able to do anything in economics. So I was going to have to figure out how to do something in business. Anyway, that's, that's kind of what got me started. Met my wife. She was, uh, I always tell her she was there working on her MRS degree, but uh, she gets mad at me when I say that. So if she, when she sees this episode, I'm going to get punched <laughs> for that one. Anyway, I met her down there and she introduced me to the mortgage industry. And uh, so I began working. Well, actually, I began going into her office so I could see her and she was always working. And eventually, you know, I started asking her if there was stuff that I could do. And pretty soon I was processing her loan files so that she could then go out to dinner with me or we could go do something afterwards. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of what got me into the industry. And I just kind of picked things up pretty quickly and started learning about how different loan programs and things work. And that's kind of what led me to where we're at today. So... I've got uh, four boys, and we're in the process of adopting a girl. I have a son who is a, a missionary, and uh, he is in South Dakota. He ended up coming across this gal who has had pretty rough time growing up. She's eight years old, real sweetheart. And um, he said, "Mom, mom my, my wife, my we raised four boys. My wife has always wanted a girl, yeah. and so he called my wife up and mom, 'Mom, you've always wanted a girl. I've got a girl for you to adopt.'" and so we're kind of going through that process right now. So we got a fifth member being added to the family, and starting all over, you know, kind of, we feel like we're kind of starting all over again. My my youngest at the time is is a freshman in high school. He's fifteen, and so we got a lot of energy now in the house. <laughs> <laughs> you just extended the period of time before, until you're going to be empty
1: nesters. That is correct. Yes. But, uh, yeah. So so many things actually that stuck out that you and I have in common. So I was also born in Provo. Okay. Uh, I went to the Marriott School of Management, for, but but for my MBA. So I got my MBA at BYU, uh, undergrad at Cal State Fullerton in French, you know, of course, because, you know, who doesn't go into f- the finance, <laughs> uh, you know, industry with a degree in French. But um, the other thing that that I really keyed in on is, you. you know, you talked about your dad being conservative and thinking you were crazy going into a commission-only job and, you know, yeah. those sorts of things. And that was my wife. So my wife grew up in a very conservative household where her dad worked for the same company for 26 years. Her dad's 93 years old today, still living on a pension. Literally, he's been retired living on his pension longer than he worked for the company, right? So yeah. it didn't work out very well for for the Ford Motor <laughs> Company, right? But it was tough. It was tough for her to be okay with me being an entrepreneur and starting my own business and the ups and downs in the early years. And so trust oh, yeah. me, I feel exactly what you're, what you went through there.
2: Yeah. For my wife, it's been the time away from home, you know, focusing on business things. You know, in fact, just last night, her parents came into town. We were having, you know, a great meeting together. And then we had some things happen where we had to get on the phone with our attorneys. And then there goes the evening, you know, dealing with different business challenges that just come up out of the blue. And that's kind of been, I guess, our relationship. At first, she hated it. Now she's kind of embraced it. And, uh, you know, she's been a really good support, I think. You know, having a spouse that supports any entrepreneurs is is very important because if you don't, it's not going to work out.
1: Yeah, no, it definitely makes it tough. So, how how long have you and Kalani been married now? Then,
2: Well, see, we got married on this December twenty eighth of nineteen ninety four. So, we will be what nine, Six, 28, 30 years 28 twenty eight years yeah, this 28 year. Years. Yeah, 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 getting close to that while. big one. Yeah, yeah, got so, our first grandchild coming. In uh, June, my uh, my oldest son we call him Boo. My oldest son was very energetic as a child. He uh, was also very coordinated. He was three and four years old. He would climb to the top of the monkey bar, or the top of the swing sets or the monkey bars, and rather than using them like they're supposed to, just walk back and forth across them. And, you know, <laughs> the other kids would want to get up there. And anyway, his younger brother came, and our hands were full for a period of time. I can imagine you know, landing with your twins, how mm-hmm. that must be. <laughs> and uh, so my oldest son's name is Boo. My second son, um, his name was T after an uncle, but it worked out perfectly because when they were given mom grief, I would, you know, be talking to mom and say, all right, boys, I'm going to come home and kick some boo tea when I get there. They, don't <laughs> <behave."> so, <laughs> they hate that joke. <laughs> well planned, well planned.
1: So, all right. So let's, let's fast forward. Oh, the other thing I was going to mention is my, my mother also raised four boys oh, really? and, and always okay. wanted a daughter of her own. Now she ended up remarrying my stepdad that I actually call my dad now. And, and, you know, really the one who raised me and, and he had a daughter as well. Okay. So she, she did get some exposure, but yeah, there's so many couples that I know that, that, that they literally keep trying because they want that daughter. And then they finally get to that point and they're like, you know what? I think we need to stop
2: trying. Yep. Cause I'm not <laughs> sure we know how to make a girl. <laughs> so. Well, my, uh, yeah. Side note, my, uh, my wife has a brother and a sister. She's a family of 10. She's the oldest of 10. Nine of them survived. One died of SIDS when she was, you know, I think six months old. Um, but her sister had four boys and they decided, her and her husband decided they were going to try one more time for another boy, ended up with twin boys. So <laughs> they got six boys now. Brother did the exact same thing. Four girls. Decided they try one more time. Ended up with twin girls. Ended oh up with, with six girls. My wife said, "We're not. We're stopping it for. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're not. We're not testing fate the way That's your siblings right. did." Yeah. yeah. So tell us about the Chinoa Fund. Tell us how that got started and where you are today.
2: Yeah. Well, ch- yeah. The, the concept for Chinoa Fund started um, back in 2006 with actually one of my business partners who at the time was was my employer. Uh, we were providing a different type of down payment assistance in the mortgage space. It was called seller assisted down payment assistance, which was legislated away in 2008 with the Dodd-Frank act. And uh, in 2006, basically the way the former concept worked was you would have a seller that would kind of raise their purchase price by three and a half percent so that, that, uh, a nonprofit organization could give a buyer a down payment and then, um, the seller would repay the nonprofit organization after they sold their property. And that was kind of the the way the down payment assistance worked back then. It was kind of a legal loophole that was created. It was originally started by a company called Nehemiah back in uh, 1998 is is when they first started doing their first transactions. And then that lasted until 2008 when it was legislated away. Um, So I was working for him. I, I, I was his national sales director. At that time, you know, there was a lot of scrutiny from FHA. There was a lot of concern about how the loans were performing and, and what was going to happen. And and uh, the, the, they were they weren't looking at the good programs; they were looking at the bad programs, which is you know often kind of the story. It's it's the it's the bad bad actors out there that end up ruining things for the rest of us. Yep. But uh, that particular organization, or as they were looking at that, I, I started thinking, no, it would you could really change this tremendously rather than using a Native American organization, I, I, well, I'd been introduced, introduced to Native American tribes. So rather than using a nonprofit organization, I was thinking, you know, if, if you get involved with a government entity and, and a tribal organization is a government entity, you could create a really unique mortgage structure, one that's really actually supported by the by the federal government. They, they have a lot of uh, different perks that you get as a governmental entity. And so I kind of tried the concept out back then in 2006. We, we partnered with a, a tribe up in North Dakota called the Lower Brule, or South Dakota called the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe. We were providing down payment assistance under the current model at the time, but we tried this new model where basically you're, you are utilizing the security prices that you get when you trade your mortgages or when you deliver your mortgages to Wall Street to, to provide the down payment fund. So it, it results in a slightly higher interest rate for the consumer, but it gives them the down payment. They need to actually be able to get into the house and lock in the price today rather than what we've seen over the last several years with you know price appreciation and people just not being able to save enough money to get in. Yeah. So that was kind of where we laid the foundation uh, for the concept that we had. We, back then, Phoenix has always been a strong market for FHA housing, for down payment assistance. Um, it, was, it was one of the top markets that that we operated in back then. It was the first market that really took off for us with the new concept as well. From 2006 until 2013, we were working on getting that concept to, to market. So it was a long, due to the financial meltdown, and some of the challenges that we face as a nation, it was a long lead time, but we had a vision of what we wanted to accomplish. We knew that it was possible. It was just, you know, figuring out the trail that you needed to take to actually get to the summit.
1: So I'm sure Landon wants to jump in, but so just explain to us what your why is in wanting to do this, right? I mean, I, I understand people get into to doing mortgages or people get into financial planning or any industry, and, but everybody kind of has You know a why. So for you, what was the why in saying I want to try to put this together in a way that makes sense? You know, it it may be that you feel strongly about helping people to have home ownership as an option, and a lot of people can't save that down payment. But I'd love to hear from you what that
2: why is. I I love that question. By the way, we have that on the wall in our conference room. Um, What is your why? Because we think the each of our employees needs to have a why as to why they show up to work as well. From my perspective. I've always um, valued customer service. For me, customer service is the most important thing that, that, that you can offer. And uh, I was originating mortgage loans. I dealt with a lot of state housing finance agencies and their down payment assistance programs, and they were horrible to work with. You would, you know, y- you, you forgot to cross a T and now they're not going to close the loan or you're going to get delayed for another month or two in underwriting or whatever the case was. It was just a very difficult process to have to go through. And so... I started looking at this as you know, if we could put together almost a, a government entity that operated more like a for-profit business, one that was competitive with regards to the pricing that they would give to the marketplace. That was another thing is the state housing finance agencies were very stingy with what they would do. They charged high interest rates to the consumer um, and then they took all the profits for themselves. They didn't share it with the mortgage companies that were originating those mortgage loans. So they were very small margins that the mortgage companies could make. So that was one of our goals was to make uh, down payment assistance programs more affordable for lenders to be able to originate, but more importantly, make them easier to utilize, so that more consumers could be able to purchase a home. Because that's really the heart of, of who we're trying to serve. Is we're trying to help build, help people <clears throat> begin to build that financial wealth. It's home ownership that that where, where most people contain their personal wealth. So. We, we really felt strongly or I, I've always felt strongly about about people buying their own home owning their own home and then being able to I personally feel that once you own your home you should try to get it paid off and you know not finance it you know but there have been a lot of people that have utilized home equity to start businesses. I did my very first mortgage company I took out a second mortgage on my house and uh, that's what got me got, got my my mortgage company started was, was that money that, that we borrowed on our on our home equity line of credit. So I really think that homeownership is a key to a lot of the onpre- entrepreneurialism that happens here in the United States, because so many people use that home equity to to buy those resources that they need for their business. Right, yeah, no doubt.
3: Yeah. So you you mentioned you guys kind of had this 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 vision, right? And it's never it's never a linear path, right? Yeah. You, you you know you've got your hurdles, you've got your potholes, you've got you know the the you know, mother nature and all, all the other things that, that have a say in that. So help us understand what, what was that vision? Cause clearly what you're doing is, is unique. And I'm still, I still try to kind of wrap my head around exactly what it is that you guys do and how you, you know, you, you partner with the tribe and everything. I'm getting, you know, better understanding of it as we progress in conversations, but what, what was that vision for you guys? And, and, and what were you working towards?
2: Yeah, so that that vision that we had was was really kind of that that why was 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 that organization that provides streamlined services to lenders and that that made it profitable for lenders to utilize these programs so that we could create more opportunity for for individuals. And so we 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 were able to really sketch out what it was going to look like when we were done. You know, our we, we knew where we wanted to get was we wanted to have a national program that we could offer in all 50 states. Currently, we've we've accomplished 49 of those 50. New York is a more difficult one. We're actually rolling out, uh, we just rolled out Puerto Rico last week. So we now operate in Puerto Rico. And I, 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 we have our official launch, I guess, in Puerto Rico next week. So we're soft launch in, in Puerto Rico right now. But But the real big thing was just understanding that we could, it was that vision of having a governmental or government owned mortgage company, really a tribally owned mortgage company that that we operated that could take advantage of the efficiencies that government has created through their lawmaking process. But that could, and so they could also provide the down payment funds to the consumer because just a regular, like, I can't give you money for a down payment to buy a house um, under current guidelines for, unless I'm in your employer, Um, I could do it as far as your employer. I could do it if I was a family member. But just some Joe on the street, I can't give them a down payment. I have to do it through a governmental entity in order for it to meet the the lending regulations that exist today.
3: Right, and so, so would would your clients be lenders? Right, I. So yeah. the end user, of course, would be the consumers Consumer, that are yeah. getting getting, you know, yeah. being able to take advantage of of what you guys have have made. But your guys as clients would be the lenders. Is that
2: You're exactly right? Yeah, okay. the retail lenders that you would go to 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 get a home to, or to get a loan to purchase a home. That's who our, that's who our customer is. And so that's where we focus our efforts. We spend a lot, spend a lot of time at trade shows, um, where a lot of these lenders gather. We spend a lot of time going to their offices, providing trainings, and then working with their industry affiliates, like, uh, real estate agents, builders, um, those particular organizations to help them understand how to utilize our programs. We've got some really unique concepts that we've come up, that, that we have come up with um, to really expand opportunities for affordable homeownership. We're working with um, a company out of uh, Las Vegas, Nevada called Panorama Mortgage that is partnering with, with us to offer kind of a unique program for what they call ten borrowers. These are individuals that are in the United States mm-hmm. that, that, that are working, and um, but they don't have maybe the they don't have all the documentation completed that they need to, but yet they're still working, trying to support their family or whatever, while they're getting that documentation, we actually have a a manner in which we can facilitate them into a really an affordable mortgage with a lower down payment than what they would get through typical financing. So, and and they're just unique twists that, you know, as we've gotten to know the mortgage industry, um, one of the things that, you know, I, I have a lot of nephews and nieces now that are, that are starting to enter college and, and they, they asked me a lot of questions about, you know, what what should I do? You know, I'm like, just do something, you know. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're flipping burgers at McDonald's. It doesn't matter if you're working at a car wash or whatever. Just get out there and start working. You're going to start to see things. You're going to start to see needs that exist. And then work towards filling that need. And you've got a business. And, um, you know, we're, they're, they're still young and I, I don't know, I, you know. I don't know if that's sinking in or not yet, but I hope that some of those will take advantage of that because that's really, you know, even as a kid when I was younger, the first business I started was a lawn mowing business because I had neighbors that didn't want to pay what the professional companies paid, but, you know, they'd pay me half that and I had, I didn't have the overhead that they had. So I had a pretty good lawn mowing, you know, lawn mowing business up until I was, uh, until I graduated from high school. Right.
3: Win-win, right? You know, half of what they were paying, you're happy to, you're happy to (laughs) accept it. That's right. Yeah. So, Todd, what what is it like partnering
2: with a, a you know
3: a Native American tribe?
2: Yeah, yeah, we, and we really had the choice of partnering with any government entity. It could have been a city, could have been a county, could have been a state. But we really felt the Native American tribe was uh, the best rate way, way to go because of the way federal laws work. It really gives them the opportunity not to be contested in their ability to operate a business throughout the United States. Whereas if you're operating a business for, let's say, uh, Maricopa County, or something like that. Then, is it really operating as a government entity if it operates in Peoria County, or, or in California, or Utah? And so, um, but as a Native American tribe, there's actually a law. Uh, it was part of the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934, where the federal government created a unique business structure called a Section uh, 17 Corporation, and those Section 17 Corporations are only available to Native American tribes. They have to be federally recognized Native American tribes, and they they can create an independent business that is actually federally chartered. So it's chartered by the federal government, and they are charged to really create business opportunities off of tribal land. That became something that was very important for us back in 2018. We had a a, a bureaucrat that was um, placed into a position of power within FHA that tried to change some of the way lending rules were done that was going to put us out of business. We ended up having to file a lawsuit against them. We ended up winning that lawsuit. Well, when I say win the lawsuit, it didn't actually go to trial. We put all of our arguments together, got it in front of a judge. Judge gave had given us a, I forget what they call it when they uh, basically prevent the, the- An injunction? An injunction. Thank you. Yeah. They gave us an emergency injunction and and they prevented HUD from being able to implement those rules until they could argue the case. We We went through our arguments, we presented our side, they presented their side, and basically the judge pulled us off the side and said, okay, these guys here, the you know the Chinoa Fund, they've got some really strong arguments. And the arguments that you've provided here, FHA, if unless you have some rabbit you can pull out of your hat, it's not going to look real good for you. Therefore, they ended up settling and, and, and basically gave us everything that we were asking for, which was really to follow the lending laws and, and to operate the way they were supposed to operate you know, not, not take some passion that some, you know, government bureaucrat had or some pet project, some government bureaucrat had. So it's been a challenge. It's been, it's been, it's been liberating in some regards, Mm -hmm. you know, working, partnering with Native American tribes. It's been challenging too, because we have different needs. We have different um, uh, understandings. The tribe itself, many tribes themselves, they don't have a lot of education amongst their members. A lot of their um, leadership Um, doesn't have a lot of education, so it's difficult for them to understand more complex business practices and things of that nature. So it's really difficult to help them understand what it is that we do, what it takes to to build a business, how you have to reinvest profits in order to be able to grow your business, uh, things of that nature.
1: Yeah, I've been trying to teach Landon that forever, but he spends all of our all of our business (laughs) profits on his just for men, you know, beard treatments. (laughs) So, uh, all right. So I think this is a great opportunity to take a quick break. Let's hear a quick word from our sponsor or, you know, really from from us, a call to action for our listeners. And then we'll come back and talk more about where you're going from here. Please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no-obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you, and thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now, back to today's program. All right, Tycoons, welcome back. We're here with uh, Todd Ludlow, uh, one of the co-founders of the Chinoa Fund, who's here in studio with Landon and I, and we're, we're talking about you know, what they're doing at Chinoa Fund and and helping with these down payment assistance programs and building a business doing it. That's also, you know, of of course, is benefiting them, but it's also benefiting Native American tribes, Um, potentially more Native American tribes as time goes on, is my understanding. So maybe you can speak to to that and then kind of just tell us a little bit more about how you guys make money, because I don't think that a lot of, of, of our listeners, business owners or non-business owners, understand how the mortgage industry makes its money.
2: Let's start with that last part, okay. because that is a difficult thing to understand. That was one thing that I found fascinating, too. When I first started working with my wife in the mortgage business, she was originating mortgage loans. And I remember one of the fellow loan officers in the office describing how mortgage companies make money out of thin air. And I, I said, how on earth does <laughs> you know, how much does that work? And really... What it boils down to is you may lend somebody $100,000, but that $100,000 has an interest rate associated with it. And so that interest rate that's associated with it determines the revenue that whoever lends the money is going to make. If that interest rate is lower, obviously they're not going to make as much money. If the interest rate is higher, then they're going to make more money. Um, so, so mortgage loans get put together into what they call pools or just large groups of loans. And those loans get delivered to the financial markets, typically through mediums like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, or for your government loans, like your FHA insured loans and and things of that nature, Jenny Mae. When those loans get delivered to the financial markets, the interest rate determines how much is going to be paid for that loan. So you take that hundred thousand dollar loan and at sometimes like, for example, the last two years with the involvement that the federal reserve had and, and that the, um, that the federal government had with with the the industry it was very profitable to be in the lending business because you could take a loan with a 4% interest rate on it you could deliver it to the financial markets and you take that $100,000 loan and they'd pay you $110,000 for that $100,000 loan today it's completely different it's completely flipped now that $100,000 loan you're going to get paid maybe $102,000 for that $110,000 loan. Again, it's based on the interest rate. And now that interest rate isn't 4%, by the way, it's going to be five and a quarter, you know, five and a half percent. Yeah. So interest rates have gone up. A lot of uncertainty has entered the market. And that makes it a little bit challenging when, when we have a program like ours, where we're actually giving money away to consumers or we're lending money to consumers, depending on how you look at it. it. used to be that most of the programs that we did here in Arizona was what we called a soft forgivable second. That meant that the consumer never, paid any mortgage pay- or never made any mortgage payments or they never made payments on the second mortgage that we gave them for their down payment. Uh, They were never charged interest on it. And as long as they made their payments on their first mortgage uh, for 36 months, we forgave it. We just gave them the money and and, and walked away. Unfortunately, we don't have the economics to be able to do that today. Um, So today we're we're, we're actually lending money to those particular consumers um, and they make a regular monthly payment on on that second mortgage. So the way we make money is when we're able to take a whole bunch of these loans and bundle them together, instead of being paid $102,000 on that $100,000 loan, we may put together $500 million worth of loans or a billion dollars worth of loans, and we'll deliver those to the market. And now maybe we get 103, 103 and a half or something. Yeah. Um, and usually we have to charge a slightly higher interest rate on the first mortgage to the consumer to be able to make the economics work. But, you know, they pay a quarter percent higher in an interest rate and they get a three and a half percent down payment. Um, It works out pretty good for the consumer because now or up to a five percent. We've had times we have been able to offer five percent, six percent in down payment funds because of the just the financial markets that are operating at the time. Again, right now, the financial markets are very uncertain. So it's challenging trying to be able to offer more. So most of our programs, again, are three and a half percent. But also, if you look at a home, when we started our program nine years ago, uh, if you look at a home that sold for $100,000, what's that home selling for today, Austin? <laughs> I know you're <laughs> about, not the real About 250000 yeah, yeah, probably two fifty. Yeah. So that $100,000 home, you needed $3,500 to purchase nine years ago. That $250,000 loan, you're going to need $10,500, well, 10, just, yeah, just shy 7, of $10,000 $10, 10, in a down payment yeah. to get into it. Yeah, so... Um, you know, a big change there. Plus, obviously, interest rates have changed quite a bit during that particular period of time. And again, if you bought at that home nine years ago, you're $150,000 richer, plus you paid that mortgage down a little bit. So that's one of the passions that we have is, is helping people understand that we have had one time in our, in our country's history where property values have actually declined. We saw that, unfortunately, during our lifetime. I don't know a whole lot about the markets right before the Great Depression. But my understanding is there were some market, there were some property declines. So there's been twice um, in, in our recorded country's history where property values have declined. Other than that, they continue to appreciate. We know with the f- inflation and things of that nature, of those property values are going to continue to increase. Plus, you're going to be paying your mortgage and eventually going to pay that house off and you have more money to be able to invest and, and to be able to start a business or or you know do those things that you want to do. Yeah. So, I mean, to answer your question, we use the financial markets to be able to, and the more money we can deliver in. And because of the unique structure of our our loans, we get paid a premium for those loans as well. And, and the reason for that is because our loans typically don't pay off soon. Investors in mortgage-backed securities, mm. the biggest thing that they look for is stability in the investments that they make. They don't want to issue a loan and then have that loan paid off in six months. Right. Um, and that's one of the things they're concerned about today. Interest rates have gone up they're concerned that the federal, you know, that we're going to start a recession and then the federal government's going to start to get involved more in the economy and push interest rates back down. And then we're going to go through a refinance boom and their money's <laughs> going to get paid off. So that's part of the reason why they're not paying very much money right now for those those mortgage loans. So it makes it a little more challenging for us to be able to build this business model.
1: Yeah. And I, I I don't think the end consumer fully understands the way that that works. I mean, I think that yeah. because of the meltdown in 2008 and AIGs in the, in the news and everybody kind of Learned a little bit about what collateralized mortgage obligations were and, you know, what that did to the markets. But I still don't think people realize how it works and how it is actually a beneficial system. They think that, you know, they're being taken advantage of, I think, a little bit because of what happened with AIG and some of these other, you know, quote unquote bad actors, which it really wasn't AIG that was the bad actor. It was the way that the mortgages were packaged together and sold to AIG, right? But so that's the thing is... The mortgage or the pool of mortgages are typically being sold, like you said, on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. The biggest buyer, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the biggest buyers of these pools of mortgages is insurance companies, life yeah. insurance companies, yep. endowments, you know, the big companies that are and they're they're buying it because they've got a steady income stream that's going to continue to mm-hmm. pay for them yeah. and they're counting on that for a certain period of time.
2: And it's virtually a guaranteed investment. You know, the federal government backs all the loans, so they're not gonna go bad. Yeah. On our end, the way an FHA mortgage loan works is, when we make an FHA mortgage loan, or we buy an FHA mortgage loan from one of the companies that, one of the retail companies uh, that does the business, and then we deliver that loan to, let's say, Jenny May and one of their securities, we have to guarantee the payments on that loan. So if that consumer stops making their payments, We still have to make the, when when I say make the payment, we don't actually make their payment for them, but we have to pay the money to Jenny May that would have been the return that they would have made while we're going through the foreclosure process. Or or, typically, you don't start with the foreclosure process. You try to work things out with them. And that's our goal. It's really to try to help them be able to stay in that home. We're going to do what we can initially to help them to stay in the home. But if it's just not going to prove possible, then you're still advancing those payments while you're going through that mitigation process, and then the foreclosure process, and then when they're finally evicted, and then you file an insurance with FHA and you get a portion of that money back. So that as a lender, that can be a very expensive process, but that's kind of an insight into how the mortgage industry works, why it works. We, as a country, we have we are very fortunate because we have the most robust financial markets to support housing. No, nobody else in the world has a 30-year mortgage, fixed rate mortgage loan. Yeah, right. That's a crazy concept when you go to Europe or someplace else. Who would guarantee their money for 30 (laughs) years at, you know, a four and a quarter per five and a quarter percent interest rate today, you know?
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I guess there's one more thing, not to, not to kind of get into the weeds about how mortgages work, but I think it's an interesting concept. I mean, I have, I have conversations with our clients or just family members who don't, you know, who think... (laughs) My, my mortgage got sold again. It was with Wells Fargo yeah. and now it's with Countrywide or now, you know, and it's bouncing kind of around and they don't understand that, that that's the way that it works, right? So the, the insurance company, for example, may own the block, right? But then they're paying a servicing company to service that
2: yeah. debt for them. And that's a whole business in, in and of itself is that, that servicing revenue that's generated. In fact, the irony is because interest rates have gone up recently, servicing values on mortgage loans have gone up significantly too. And the way the, the servicing revenue works is you have, first off, you have a bond that, that is issued through Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Jenny Mae. That bond pays a return to its investors. Okay. But the interest rate that the consumer pays is obviously higher than what that bond rate is. On an FHA loan, that bond can be up to three quarters of a percent, or that, that interest rate on the mortgage loan could be up to three quarters of a percent higher than the bond that's issued. Jenny May is going to take a 6% guarantee fee or a six basis point guarantee fee. Yep. What is that? Zero
0: zero six percent Yeah.
2: Yep. Or 0. 0.006. Yeah. yeah. And then and then the remaining 69 basis points or 0.69% is servicing revenue. So for for the next however long that loan exists, they're going to make 0.69% a year. It used to be. Uh, when I say used to be over the last two years, because of the low interest rates and the volatility in the marketplace, you could sell that servicing value was roughly one and a half to two times your annual revenue. Now it's up to four, four and a half, five times your revenue, depending on who's valuing that. So it's it's completely changed the dynamics of the servicing revenue on mortgage loans. But ironically, the bond market is down so low that it hasn't fully compensated for that uh, yeah that that loss in the bond market
1: yeah we're in a unique spot i guess with you yeah. know bond market and stock market where we are but it, it's it's a really good economics lesson right because it yeah. truly is based on supply and demand so yeah. the, the servicing companies can command a higher rate now because or they're receiving a higher rate now because interest rates have gone up so the refi boom is probably going to slow down so they can count on that revenue for a longer period of time yep yeah. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting lesson. At least it is for me. I mean, the listeners are probably thinking, Austin, enough with the math. Move yeah, on. No
3: kidding. We're, <laughs> we're boring everybody. Now. I I got a, a just a kind of a, a tag along thought slash kind of question to that. You know, um, as you mentioned, you know, it has not been a straight straight line for you, right? It's, you know, in, in any business, you know, anyone that starts a business and has been doing it for five, ten, fifteen, twenty, or you know, a few decades. Uh, you know, they, they've they had their bumps, you know, they, they, they've rode that roller coaster, right? And that's what's gotten them to where they are today. So if you look back at 08, 09, the crisis, all the stuff that you have been through the last 10, 15 years, what lessons are you taking from what you've learned to kind of um, help guide you into whatever we may be coming into right now, whether it's a recession, obviously interest rates are going up. Um, You know, we have several clients in Nevada and Utah and Arizona that are in, uh, they're more on the, um, on the broker side, right? And, you know, they'll, they're, they're saying their businesses are down 50 to 80%. Yeah. So what have you learned? You know, what are some good lessons that you would learn that are going to help kind of guide you to navigate these interesting waters that we are kind of in and maybe might get quite a bit more interesting here in the near future.
2: Yeah. Probably the most important one has been during times of excess, when, when, when things are very profitable, um, invest, save your money. Don't go out and buy that new truck. Sorry for, I hope you're not being sponsored by any <laughs> dealerships or anything of that nature. You know, uh, don't go out and you don't need to have a big house or a big mansion to live in. you know, buy something that meets your needs, but you know, that, that, that you can afford the payment. You can comfortably afford the payment on. And when you start having that success, you don't need to, you know, sell it and buy something big. You don't need to keep up with the Jones, find out what's comfortable for you and, and, and reinvest, you know, don't, don't just spend. Um, and that's, that's been very important for us as we have, we, we spent a lot of time just reinvesting profits. that We've got today, we could not keep our business open. had it not been for the reinvestment that we did over the last two and a half years, um, because the economics are so bad. We haven't had to lay anybody off. Um, and volume's down 50%. Part of that's because we've we, we become very efficient. Um, another thing that I found is do what you can to maintain your good employees, support them, let them know what a good job that they do. You know, we, we just, uh, we took our sales team on, on, a, on a little sales trip. We, we have an annual party where, you know, we have a lot of people, you know, kind of like Landon not coming in t- to the studio. We have a lot of people that attend a lot of our meetings or they work from home, um, they work remotely. And but we try to get everybody together once a year uh, to be able to spend time with one another, to get to know one another, because it's, it's a lot harder to chew out your coworker when you know them than it is when they're just, you know, a name on a piece of paper or just just a name in the company roster. So we really do a lot to encourage our employees to get to know one another. Um, and then really we, we focus on, it, it's an ongoing effort and training on customer service. We, we, we have a kind Of a philosophy with our company that customer service actually is, is meaningless, it's cu- customer loyalty that we value, and so we, we really want to go above and beyond and, and wow our customers. And you know, sometimes you fall short of that, and, and so you, you have that continual training, you're working with your employees to help them continue to perfect their skills and become better. And it's that reinvestment, just not, not just in money, but it's the, the investment of your time in each of your people. It's that's really important because then when you get to these tough times, I'm hoping we don't get to the point where we have to start having conversations about, well, you know, when things were really good, we gave everybody raises and we gave bonuses. Well, obviously the bonuses aren't, aren't as big as they used to be. And maybe we have to have some conversations about readjusting, you know, salaries and things of that nature to get back in line with where the market's at. Cause we do pay on the higher end of, of what our industry um, provides. We also you know our our people are very effective. They're um, very efficient. When um, we think they do a better job than than other people that that perform you know current jobs or current similar duties. So save your money, invest during those times of plenty, and invest in your people. Love
1: it. Love it! Yeah, I, I would sum that up with uh, it's it's an old book, but I think that everybody should read it. The Millionaire Next Door. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it really is just about living within your means, and you know, you don't need the nicest car. You don't need, you know, I, I'm I'm a car guy. I buy I buy cars. I like cars, right? But I don't buy like the really quarter of a million dollar expensive car, right? I mean, if I buy a car, it's a unique car that I maybe paid $20,000 for yeah, because I like the uniqueness of it. And it does increase in value, but just be smart, right? I mean, just live well beneath your means. I mean, with what I do for a living, if I jump in an Uber, they ask me what I do for a living and I tell them. And the next question is always, what would you tell a guy my age, blah, 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 (laughs) right? I mean, (laughs) and so the basic advice that I give is live on 80% of what you make, no matter what. I I don't care who you are, live on 80% of what you make. And if, you ha- if you're have, if you charitably inclined at all, it's a good tax strategy as well, but give 10% of it away, save 10% of it. If you do that, and I've got kids that are becoming adults now, and I, they're very aware of this, if you will live on 80% of your income, yep. you will be fine for the rest of your life.
2: That's a great strategy. Yeah, I agree. And speaking of cars, I, there I, there was a particular car that I wanted, but I knew what the price tag was. And I wasn't, you know, I, I'm not going to spend that much money on a car. I just kind of waited around, watch, you know, I'd I'd watch the classifieds and things of that nature. I ended up finding a total, total divergence. So it was a branded title, but I got the exact car that I wanted, branded title for a quarter of what I would have paid for it had I gone to the dealership and and bought it new off the lot. So you're right. You just, you know, if if you identify things that you want, figure out how you can get it that's in your budget. Don't Mm -hmm. just go, you know, don't make that emotional purchase and run down to whether it's the dealership or the Mall or whatever it is, and, and make that emotional purchase.
1: Yeah, for sure.
3: It, it's cool how things tie together sometimes. Because when you made the comment about about the truck, and you made the comment about millionaire next door, actually, I just read that book last year, and you know, it really helped me to kind of um, better understand where some of my own financial. Um, thoughts and inclinations and habits kind of came from. And one of the biggest takeaways from that book actually was they they help to draw a comparison when you're looking at a vehicle, which is if you're if you're going to go out and buy a vehicle, let's say the vehicle's I don't know, $50,000. So take $50,000 and compare that to your net worth, right? So if you have a net worth of Ten thousand dollars, or fifty thousand dollars, or even two hundred thousand dollars. Compare that fifty thousand dollar depreciating asset. Right now, these last last couple of years have been, an, uh, you know, kind of an anomaly. I get <laughs> yeah. it, but generally speaking, when you buy a vehicle, it depreciates in value. But take that take that vehicle value, and and compare it to your net worth. And if it is more than your net worth, or it's anywhere close to 25 or 50 you, percent, you probably ought to uh, reconsider buying, you know, a vehicle that's that expensive. I, mean, I remember when my buddies were all graduating from, from college. I graduated years after them because I, I took some time off and I had a really lengthy uh, college career. <laughs> but uh, my buddies were all graduated from college at the same time. And w- what's the first thing they all did? Bought a brand new Lexus. Eric, what's up? Uh, Henry, <laughs> Henry bought a brand new Dodge charger. Uh, Stephen bought a brand new Acura. It was like the LX or something, you know? So 35 to $60,000 cars, every one of them. And they had five to $900 a month payments. I'm like, you guys are
2: crazy. Yeah. So, uh, just yeah. interesting That's how so that common. all kind of ties together. Such a common trend. I, what taught me the lesson was it was a guy that was, uh, he was, he was buying a house and he was really excited about this home, but he got this great deal on this truck just as we're just a few days before we were closing, but it was still a $650 a month payment. He bought the truck and he was expecting to go into close on the house and it, it threw his debt to income ratios off. He was not able to qualify for, qualify for that home and he lost the property. It was really unfortunate to me. That was a, you know, Fortunately, it was one of those lifelong lessons that I learned from somebody else mm-hmm. rather than blundering myself. I always say, "What a, a smart man uh, learns from your experiences. A wise man learns from somebody else's experiences." Yep. So that's a lesson that stuck to me was just how devastated he was to learn that because of that impulse buy, you know, he lost out on his opportunity at least that time to to be able to buy it to buy that house. Right. Right. So as we kind of co- come to a close here in the next few minutes,
3: just help us, help us understand what does the future hold for Todd and what is the future hold for your, you know, your business uh, ventures that you're uh, a part of?
2: I appreciate that, yeah. A lot of adaptation to change, and that's one of the things that makes, makes, makes it exciting. We're going to have to adapt to these new you know, markets that we have. We have challenges um, with some of our partnerships that, that we have to work through. I'm a firm believer in if you work hard, and you treat people right, everything's going to work out. So you know we try to, we try to follow that philosophy. You know we we work hard. You know I'm I'm always thinking about different things we can do within the business to make things better, improve, and uh, you know that is what's opened a lot of opportunities for us. And sometimes they take a long time to implement, but you know you get there. Um, it's when I, I I hate television mainly because it's just, it's just, it's a time suck. It's nice every once in a while to sit down and maybe watch a movie with my wife or something. But the last thing I'm going to do when I come home from work is sit down in front of the television because I lose all my creativity. You know, that's time when I can either spend with the family and invest in, in my, in my wife and my kids, or it's time that I can invest in my business. But what, what return do I get on my investment when I sit down and watch a television show? I got some water cooler talk in the office tomorrow (laughs) maybe, but you know, it just, you know, that's, I think that's, that's a good habit to get into is to, is to take some me time to, or, or, or to take, you know, to cut more of the, our media out of our lives and, and and use that as productive time rather than entertainment time, but.
1: Or, you know, go back and watch past episodes of Tycoons of Small Biz. There you go. That works too.
2: (laughs) Do something that's going to build your mind rather than veg your mind. Right.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, no, I, I, I've really appreciated the conversation, Todd. I think that, hats off to you for what you've built. I mean, I, I, I would say what you do for a living is one of those, I don't know if it's, it's rare, but it's pretty rare to where you can just kind of put your head on your pillow at night and say, I'm doing something that matters in the world, right? I mean, I'm helping people typically underserved communities with down payment assistance programs to help them get into their home. And it's, typically their first home and for some of them it's going to be the only home that they ever that they ever own and it's helping them to build their net worth it's helping them to to have an asset that they can potentially leave behind to the next generation so hats off to you for what you're doing i think that it's that it's great and and even more so you're you know you're humble about it you've built a great organization and and we appreciate the nuggets of advice that you've shared with our listeners here today
2: I appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you guys. Thanks for coming in the office today, Lana. I'm glad you were here with us. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Likewise. All right. So, last thing, I'll I'll give for you an opportunity if you want to share a website or phone number, LinkedIn profile, anything that you'd like if uh, any of our listeners wanted to reach out to you and get a hold of you.
2: Yeah, our website is chinowafund.org. That uh, that that going there. Whether you're a lender or you're a consumer, you can find more out. Of, you can find more about how you can utilize down payment assistance to purchase a home or get connected with a lender that will help you to be able to, to buy a property utilizing one of our down payment assistance programs. And, you know, other than that, I mean, that's probably the best place is, you know, again, chinoafund.org. that uh, we, we have that trademarked and that'll follow us around, you know, no matter what changes we have to do within the marketplace to um, to be able to continue to, to provide that support. Awesome. Thanks again for being here and uh,
1: thanks for listening, tycoons. Thanks, Todd.
0: You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance. Austin and Landon are comprehensive financial planning professionals specializing in financial estate and succession planning for small business owners. Austin and Landon have offices in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Las Vegas, Nevada and represent clients in 14 states throughout the country. Join Austin, Landon, and the Featured Tycoons live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. right here on Business Radio X and your favorite podcast platform.